Good evening and welcome to the Lockdown Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow the podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. On tonight's episode, we are going to be continuing our Winnipeg Jets player reviews and season reviews, which will feature a letter grade sort of like you get on your test. And these grades, again, are more about the holistic sense than just a pure take the grade at face value kind of analysis. You know, it it kind of factors in what they're expected to do, what kind of role they were given, and how I think that they handled that role in particular, especially guys like Kyle Connor, who were players that ended up being, you know, offensive catalysts, but perhaps defensive sieves, and were used in situations like the PK. And if you check out the previous episodes, Kyle Connor was one player. I've also talked about Mark Shifley, Andrew Kopp, Matthew Perot, Dylan DeMello, and Josh Morrissey. We're going to kick tonight off with a couple of other players, and I guess we'll start with Blake Wheeler, who probably had one of the more confusing seasons as far as what you would expect from him. You know, Blake, over the past couple of seasons, I think it's clear, has slowed down. Wheeler used to be this power forward who cut in and drove really hard towards the net, had a really great release, and was just generally an all-around even-strength menace, especially when he wanted to create offensive opportunities. He had this great acceleration and a nice inside cut that allowed him to get the jump on defenders even when they were marking him, and really, he just had this physical presence that allowed him to create so much separation distance in a relatively short amount of time. I think it's obvious that the days of Blake Wheeler essentially doing those one-on-one rushes and really being an you know all-around offensive menace are definitely over. And in previous seasons, he actually didn't have much of an impact on even strength metrics, especially in his ability to create offensive opportunities. You know, he's definitely still a skilled passer. He has a decent shot, and on the power play, he can be very useful. But I think as far as his offensive days are concerned, especially as a play driver, we're not really seeing that anymore. What I was surprised to find is that despite his lack of offensive productivity, he's definitely having a noticeable impact on defensive metrics. Part of that, I think, is because as a result of him not really being as mobile as he used to be, he tends to act more like a third defenseman than a winger when I've seen him out there. You know, he's not exactly skating around actively a whole lot, but he's also not letting guys get by him either. I feel like his conservative approach almost reminds me of one of those more traditional shutdown defensemen, although in Blake's case, he really is maintaining control of the puck, he's not really letting too many skaters by him, and though he is kind of awkward, you know, when he's in possession in the offensive zone, he's also not letting too many guys get by him. So I I think at this stage of his career, I'm not 100% sure what position makes the most sense. You know, when he was tried as a center, he was actually pretty okay. I wouldn't say that center wheeler is exactly uh, an ideal situation, but I think given where he is at this stage of his career and the kind of skill set that he possesses, as well as his own physical status, I think that moving him back to center next season might be the best option, and it helps Winnipeg get a little bit more depth down the middle, and the Jets have more than enough wingers in terms of guys like Veselainen and a couple of other players to, to get back into this and potentially have a, a stopgap filler until they get a real second-line center. I know that Wheeler does prefer to play at winger, but you definitely need to cut his minutes back because I don't think he can keep up playing like 25 minutes a night. He's definitely still a valuable NHLer in the sense that I think he has quite a few positive impacts in certain areas, but I, I think the rest of his game is at the point where if you cut his minutes back, I think you're going to get more value out of him that way. As a center, I think his distribution skills and his 
reduced mobility but still high-end vision will make him you know an effective NHLer and a decent player to help the Jets down the middle and you can also cut back on his minutes without really hurting his ice time. You bill it as him going on the second line to stabilize your your central playmaking depth, and I think that that is more digestible than, look, we just need to cut your minutes back, period, because you can't keep up. I think if you have him on the second line, you can still give him enough ice time to keep him happy, but you can also cut back here and there and, and give a little bit more time to that top line. Speaking of top line and top six wingers, our next guy is going to be Patrick Laine, who might be one of the more polarizing players for this fan base. Laine has always been somebody who I think is kind of a misunderstood player. When he came to the NHL, a lot of what was talked about was, of course, his shooting, his lack of mobility, his poor defensive impact, and the incredible goal-scoring ability that he had, but didn't always get a chance to use. Line A was principally a power play driver, and that was the case for at least two or three of the last several seasons. And I think all of that makes this season all the more surprising. Last year, when he was paired with Little, and really just paired with about anyone, he, he couldn't really drive play because he was asked to do a lot of things that a power forward would do. You know, he was asked to lead zone transitions, he was asked to essentially spearhead offensive efforts between the neutral zone and offensive zone. And we all know that line A, especially along the walls and in possession, when under pressure, it's, it's not really a great time for him. He kind of handles the puck a bit like a hand grenade sometimes, especially near the walls and when he's trying to get through defenders. That doesn't mean that he can't, it's just not really the most ideal situation. Or at least that's how it was before. This year saw, I think, quite a bit of growth from him to the point where he's starting to look more like a really well-rounded NHLer. Even though his goals production was down, his overall points production was still very strong, and I feel like we got to see a lot more of him, especially at even strength. I mean this in the sense that I think his overall playmaking and play-driving ability both increased at even strength. As far as his actual even strength time on ice is concerned, his average definitely went down this season. I think for me that's a little bit of a mistake because he's starting to show signs of significant growth. You know, he can make defensive plays, I think we can see him getting into positions that are more likely to be the right ones, especially defensively, and I, I think that overall, his passing, his vision, and his distribution, as well as his general playmaking ability, have all significantly improved, and he's making better use of it. The thing that is very frustrating with him is that, you know, when you have a guy like Neil Pionk quarterbacking your power play, it basically nullifies Line, and I think Line keeps getting moved around because, you know, Maurice thinks that Line is the chief issue there, but it's obvious to anyone who just watches this team for more than a couple of seconds that it's the people servicing Line that need to improve. Patrick's always in the right position, but his shot is not getting off in time because the passes to him are too slow. As far as a letter grade is concerned for both of Wheeler and Line, I think for Wheeler, I want to give him like a solid B. He's not really where he was before, and I think he's expected to be a more offensively minded winger but he's not really there yet. And overall, I think his 5v5 play driving ability is definitely starting to decline. So given the expectations of his contract extension, what he did this season just wasn't really cutting it as far as what we're looking for. For Line A, I'm probably going to give him closer to like a B plus. I think that he definitely saw a dip in offensive production for goal scoring, which is kind of a problem. But the rest of his game significantly improved from last season and previous seasons in general. I mean, we're almost seeing a guy who his net offensive impact and on ice defensive impact are approaching break even. If you have a guy like that who can drive your shooting percentages, you take that all day. It's certainly an improvement over where he was in previous seasons, and I think we're starting to see a much more well-rounded version of Liney that I'm not sure many folks expected to see. This is getting closer to what he was when he was in Finland, 
and hopefully he can do this and become a, a much better player for the Jets going forward because if he becomes a more versatile threat, it's going to make him a really fantastic winger and someone that the Jets can rely on. Up next, we'll cover Connor Hellebuck's amazing season and very likely Vezina winning season. And then in a little bit of a break from the usual, we'll actually give a grade to Paul Maurice. While player evaluations are always important, I also think it's important to consider the people manning the bench behind those players because that often impacts the kind of performance that we get out of the guys on the ice. Before then, though, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the brand new and improved Built Bar. If you've never had a Built Bar before, it's like a candy bar, but with all the protein and nutrients you get from your typical workout supplement protein bar. Better yet, this protein candy bar doesn't have any of the guilt that you get from eating a sugary one. With Built Bar's relaunch, they're adding six new flavors, including caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. If you also want to give one of their 12 original flavors a try, I'd recommend trying the raspberry and mint brownie flavors to get a good sense of what they offer. If you're someone who's counting calories either for a weight maintenance or a weight loss program, Built Bars are the perfect fit. Most of them are 200 calories or less, around 5 grams of net carbs, and anywhere from 15 to 18 grams of protein. They're low calorie, low sugar, high in protein, and high fiber, so they're perfect for keto diets as well. And they taste absolutely amazing, I can personally attest to that. When you place an order at BuiltBar.com, be sure to use promo code LOCKEDON to get $10 off your next order. Again, that is promo code LOCKEDON to receive $10 off your next order. If you follow my personal Twitter, you also know that I'm a bit of a geek and a gamer. I definitely play a lot of sports games, I've gotten into anime recently, and I watch plenty of series on Netflix. One of my guilty pleasures is definitely like hard-boiled detective stories, especially stuff with a bit of a noir approach, you know, that we don't really get many great noir stories, and I think finding one that's something unique and, and different is always a bit of a challenge. And that's why Your Story Transmedia kind of caught my eye. They're a startup indie comic book, graphic novel, and video games publisher based in the Winnipeg area, but they aren't just making stuff there, they're actually setting some of their stories in Winnipeg, including their new flagship comic, The River Knows, which is set in Winnipeg during the 1960s. It's a supernatural noir detective story that melds a little bit of Sin City, Mad Max, and X-Files to create something entirely new, and you'll catch a classic sight of Portage in Maine. If you're looking for something a little bit different, they also have a couple of sci-fi series, including Eon, Undercover UFO, and through space and time and stuff. You could snag ebook versions of all of their comic books online at yourstory.ca for just $1.99. And if you'd like to purchase a limited print run, first edition, high quality, 8.5 by 11 hard copy of each comic, they're also available for just $11.99. If you're a gamer, be sure to be on the lookout for Alien Machine Glow, which follows the hijinks of a cucumber farmer who gains the ability to see aliens. You can find more information on Alien Machine Glow at yourstory.ca, as well as Your Story's other comic books and media productions. And when you place an order, be sure to use one-time promo code JETS2020 to get 15% off your order. Again, that is one-time promo code JETS2020 to get 15% off your order. Picking up where we left off on our Winnipeg Jets player analysis and review, we are going to be taking a look at both Connor Hellebuck and Paul Maurice. And yes, Maurice is not technically a player, but he actually has quite a bit of influence on how those players perform. Up first, though, Connor Hellebuck, the leading man in net, the likely Vezina finalist and winner. I can't give Hellebuck anything less than an A+. What he did this season for the Jets was literally carry them to the playoffs. I know that the Jets have lots of scoring weapons, and they can actually play pretty competent hockey, but for most of the season, this team was an absolute train wreck, and Hellebuck was the only thing keeping them in it. Over the course of the season, he put on an absolute clinic and carried the Jets to not only a playoff spot, but actually gave them a fighting chance throughout the postseason. I will say that his, his playoff performances weren't exactly as great as some of his regular season matches, but I don't think you can really hold that against him. I mean, Winnipeg's defense, especially in the postseason, uh, they let a couple of really bad moments occur, especially on the penalty kill. 
And considering Hellebuck even got them to the dance, I think that that is probably more than enough and more than what the Jets could even hope for, especially with how bad this team played for most of the season. Hellebuck was extraordinary for almost the entire year. He carried them to the playoffs, he got them to the dance, and he gave them more of a shot than anyone ever could have believed, especially with the kind of roster the Jets were icing. I mean, Winnipeg's defense at this point is somewhere between half an AHL and ECHL squad with a couple of top four NHLers on a good day. And somehow Hellebuck posted above like a 920. I want to say like he had a 927 on the on the regular season. His playoff save percentage wasn't as great, but in terms of expected goal value, Hellebuck, I believe, led the team because of just how many goals above replacement he was able to save. He basically gave Winnipeg a, an amazing performance over the regular season because his overall goals saved above replacement were just extraordinary. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you see from like a, a couple of players combined, especially in defensive impact, and, and somehow Hellebuck just kind of kept things together and kept this team afloat. On the other end of the spectrum is, is Paul Maurice's impact on this team, and uh, you know I'm going to get the letter grade out of the way. I'm, I'm basically sitting at like a D plus to like a C minus, and I think that that is probably generous. The Jets were playing like a lottery team for almost the entire season. You know, I, I don't really give out F grades very often or failing grades or anything below a C, but Maurice, I think, just kind of is, is flirting with that for me because he basically takes this roster that has a lot of talent, uh, especially in attack, and I think that the way that he thinks about the best way to account for Winnipeg's defensive shortcomings is to play defensively-minded hockey, and this roster is simply not built for that. I think that the reason that the Jets struggled so much was because Maurice was so afraid to have them essentially cut loose and trade end-to-end -end rushes when I, I think you actually need to do that more often because you've got an amazing guy in net. And Winnipeg's defenders really can't be allowed to spend any time in the defensive zone because when they're put under pressure in their own end, they tend to make a lot of mistakes and those pucks end up either in the back of your net or lead to power play opportunities against. If you're the Jets, you just can't really afford to have that happen. And I think you need to be comfortable taking more risks than what we saw with this team this year. You know, I, I did expect the Jets to be bad, but I think the level of badness that we saw which at, at some stretches was worse than the NHL, it's really a, a bit of a disappointment for me. The latter stretch of games and some of the postseason games kind of curved, I think, the overall grade up a little bit. There were some closer to break even hockey, even if it wasn't outstanding, but at least the Jets were watchable. But for a good half of the season, if not a little bit longer, the Jets were basically a train wreck. I probably did not give Maurice a complete D because some of that is definitely not his fault. You know, the Jets roster, especially on defense, was pretty poor. But by the same token, the way that he tried to compensate for their shortcomings, as well as some of the guys that it seems like he brought in to try and fix these problems, were either just poor in talent or, or not really great fits. And I think that that is, you know, definitely a joint issue on multiple levels. And Maurice did nothing to help the situation. I missed the version of Maurice that coached the 2017-2018 team where he mostly let the Jets do what they wanted and actually had them playing pretty decent hockey, especially with the kind of talent that they had on that roster. When he's comfortable with them cutting loose, Maurice doesn't really impede the team all that much. In fact, he just lets them fly the zone. He lets them create lots of waves of pressure, and I think that that is something that he's totally okay with if he trusts his defense. Until we get to that point, though, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot of heartache and a lot of heartburn with this team because, you know, it's going to be a bit before the back end is fully repaired. We'll pause our player reviews there for this evening and resume next week with a couple more ratings and reviews as well as some potential projections for next season's lineup. But before we close out tonight, we will give you a live in-status look at what's going on between the New York Islanders and the Tampa Bay Lightning, which has actually been a surprisingly good game.
Welcome back to this final segment of the Locked On Jet Show. Tonight we are going to be closing out this episode with a little bit of an inside look at the Tampa Bay Lightning versus the New York Islanders. And for the New York Islanders, this was a must-win game. The Isles are down 2-0 in the series, and they have had a couple of games where they either played really well and got unlucky, or Tampa Bay just found those extra moments and ended up making them pay on simple mistakes. Throughout the series, we have seen Trotz really struggle to get his team to contain Tampa Bay's speed and transition ability, which is not exactly surprising. But I think the other issue is that even if you manage to at least defensively muzzle that squad overall, they don't really need many opportunities to score a couple of goals on you. Because of the level of offensive talent and goal-scoring ability that that roster contains, any mistake that you make usually gets punished. Tonight was actually a surprisingly different kind of game because the New York Islanders especially after scoring the first goal, kind of moved out of like a very tentative feeling out stage into a little bit more free-flowing action. And, you know, over time they ended up getting a 3-1 lead, although the play after that started to turn very much in Tampa Bay's favor. You know, the Islanders have had these moments where they were able to create opportunities, especially down low and right in front of Vasilevsky, but that extra pass or that last shot that they needed just didn't materialize in the way that they needed it to, so they were struggling to finish in previous games. Tonight, those opportunities actually went in. You know, Beauvillier had a goal. Pellick finished a really nice passing sequence. We also saw, of all people, Cal Clutterbuck capitalize on a bit of a miscommunication in front of Vasilevsky after Vasilevsky thought that his pad was loose, and Cal ended up taking the lead on that. And so, you know, it's just a bit of a weird game, but Tampa Bay definitely didn't sit back, and right now they're currently fighting to try and create some offensive opportunities, especially after a really great uh, second period, end of second period push, and early start to the third period push. This this Lightning roster is just really scary and really fast, and right now the Isles are basically doing everything that they can to try and disrupt those offensive zone exits and prevent Tampa from getting any sort of counters going. You know, Trotz knows what this Lightning team can do, and he's basically throwing as many physical shutdown players as he can at this Tampa Bay counter to try and neutralize the threat before the Lightning gets set up in the offensive zone. If the Islanders hold on, they certainly have Verlamov to thank. I think Semyon has been amazing, especially towards the end of that second period after the the Isles had a 3-1 lead. He was one of the main differences that this uh, this Isles team even has a chance tonight. But there are still eight and a half minutes left, and things are going to be pretty tight. Speaking of pretty tight, last night I did tell you that I was going to give you a brief summary of what ended up happening between the Dallas Stars and the Vegas Golden Knights, and actually I could have just recorded the end of the episode right after that uh, overtime period because overtime only lasted like 30 seconds. You know, Vegas has gotten caught on a couple of neutral zone changes and whatnot, and in this sequence we saw a bit of a busted read where Alexander Radulov ended up finding himself alone on the right flank, and he came in and just whipped a shot against Lerner that Lerner really never had a chance on. That puck just ripped off the post, and it was just a gorgeous shot and not really anything that you could stop. Just like that, the Stars have a 2-1 series lead, and it's an entirely new series, and tomorrow's going to be a very interesting game. I expect Vegas to potentially tie it up again because Vegas doesn't really like to sit back and wait, but if Dallas wins uh, a third game... Yeah, we have a very interesting series upcoming. That will do it for tonight's show. I'll let you know what happens in this Isles Lightning game on Monday, as well as a recap of the Vegas Dallas Stars game four. But before you log off tonight, be sure to check out the Locked On National podcast hosted by Sarah Avampado. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great night and go Jets go.